Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today, I'm talking to Simon Hoiberg. He shares his strategy for running two businesses and a YouTube channel without burning out. We'll talk about business validation, building reusable processes to stay sane, and creating sustainable businesses while maximizing your founder productivity. Here's Simon. You're building two businesses and you're operating a huge YouTube channel at the same time. I think you're a writer, you're a teacher, and you're always part of the conversation on social media. At least in my sphere, I see you there all the time. For most people, doing any one of these things would be enough. And you've been doing this for, what, five years now? How do you do all of this without burning out? How does it work? That's a, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I, I get this a lot. Um, I think it's something that, um, that mainly builds up over time. Since I started, um, it's actually not more than two years ago, uh, I, I started this whole thing on, on, on social media. Um, I quickly got into a... Um, an awareness about making my efforts, um, can you say, compound. And I've been doing that by focusing um, on sort of using building blocks. That's the kind of like uh, the, the, the way I'm thinking about it. So every time I build something, every time I put something out there, there needs to be something more to it than just the result that that thing can give me right there and right now. So I always try to do this with anything so when in the beginning, my first two, three YouTube videos, as, a, as an example, they took forever to build. Then I started getting into the habit of every time I finished the YouTube video to strip that video apart and see if there anything in this video I can turn into a reusable building block that I can make use to make the next video even faster. Or is there anything in this video I can turn into a process in a checklist I can make that will make the whole thing go faster. Once you start doing this over time, it's as if these building blocks and this whole ecosystem, it's sort of compounds and it makes you way more productive than when people see me doing A, then B, then C, then D. They think about themselves and how much time it would take them to do A and B and C and D. And it also did for me in the beginning. But I also didn't start out with A, B and C and D all at the same time. I built on top of what I already had and slowly let that evolve. And now... It's I I always think of it as like I'm when I'm working on one thing I'm working on it all, and in that way, effort put in one thing also reflects on another, and it enables me to do a whole lot of things that appears as if it's a lot that's getting like the output is really big. That sounds like you have a process for building processes, you know, like you, you approach every activity as if it were a process in the making. Is that something you just came up with or did you find inspiration somewhere else for this? I think I, I think I have inspiration from this, from the coding world. Uh, being a software developer for many years, this uh, is something that you were uh, taught early on that contribute to open source. If you have something you built, turn it into an NPM package or Gradle package or anything that you can put online and let other people use that as well. And if not, use it for yourself. You have that piece of code. You spent time making that very elegantly and make your future self happy and make this easier for you. And even in the software world, I actually saw very few, even senior developers with many years of experience actually doing this actually stopping up every time they build something, taking that little bit of extra time to making it into a modular solution that they can use for their future self. And that's my inspiration came from there. I actually, in the software world, got really good at that. And it 
it, it uh, enabled me to produce software really, really fast. I've been working as a freelance consultant for many years, and this was obviously very beneficial when I had new clients. I would never take code from another project with another client that they've been paying me for, but there are certain generic solutions in software that you can um, generalize and then use for, for something else. And it enabled me to produce results way faster for my clients. And it's the same kind of uh, thinking that I took and put into my um, entrepreneur life. And it's funny because it's when, when it comes to content, especially YouTube and content on social media, there's such a level of creativity going into that. So that I think a lot of people, they don't really think about how how operational it actually can be behind the scenes and how much you can actually streamline and make processes out of all of this. And that's basically where my inspiration came from. Interesting. Interesting to see the, the coding mindset translate into something that is immediately useful for an entrepreneur or a creator. I, I very much agree. I think I have the same mindset and that makes me approach my, my content creation, the, the podcast and my uh, very, very... Uh, not yet mature YouTube channel, you know, like it makes this a more of a, an extra structured approach instead of just hoping for inspiration to strike, right? That if you, if you approach this as a process-based thing, then you try to figure out what steps can I actually take reliably and meaningfully every time. And then that turns into a process. You know what you just said? I, I find that interesting because if you say many senior developers don't have that mindset, I think if I remember my my work experience for enterprise businesses uh, as a salaried engineer, somebody who's paid to be there, they didn't track for things that are reusable, right? They didn't measure my work in terms of can this be used again? They measured it. Is this useful now? Am I like fulfilling yes. the scope? Great. And if not, then I did too much work on this. It's not, it's not immediately apparent in many ways that this could be useful at a later point. I think freelancers, they have that. They have the opportunity to reuse these components where salaried engineers may not even understand that this is something that they might be reusing at a later point. Some might. Obviously, it depends on the, the position, right? What's your opinion on that? I, I, I totally agree. Um, now, I don't have a whole lot of experience as a as an employee in, in the software world. I've been a freelancer most of my uh, my my career as a, as a software developer, but I, I totally agree. And it also makes perfect sense that if your company and if your employer and if your managers aren't really rewarding you for that effort of, because it does take a little bit of extra effort, like pu pu pushing something now that's useful now, um, is one thing, but it does take a little bit of extra effort to actually polish that up and wrap it up in something that can be used later. And if you're not rewarded for that, I, I totally get that it's not something that the worst incentive, um, it's not something as a senior developer that you would do. As a freelancer, it's not like your client is paying you for that either, but it just pays off in the fact that you will be dealing with multiple clients at a time or from month to month or three month period to three month period. Um, yes, so so I I agree. I never thought about it actually, but but uh, I I think it makes perfect sense. It, it, I think for for entrepreneurs that come from a software background, this is uh, becomes very apparent that it's very useful to build reusable things like this and. Particularly, and you're a serial entrepreneur too, right? You build one thing and then you build another thing. Um, what's the, let's say maybe talk about your software as a service businesses, because I find that super interesting. Not only the kinds of businesses you build, because they are very close to what I like to use, being a, a Twitter creator and a, somebody who's writing, uses links and stuff. So both, both FeedHive and LinkTrip are things that I find very interesting just as products. 
how did they come to be? Because I have this distinct feeling that Link Trip is a consequence of something that you needed along the way. Is that right? Like, how, how did these two businesses come into being? Yes and no. Um, <laughs> to, to, uh, to, and it's one of those um, to, to, to start off with. Um, back when I started uh, building FeedHive, that's a little bit more than two years ago now. And, and this was actually the same with, uh, with LinkDrip. I had just prior to building FeedHive tried to build another tool. It was called Sigmatic. And it was um, a tool you could use to integrate with your GitHub account and let software engineers on teams track the performance among their team members. Horrible idea. It, I come from a background in sales. And I thought that this idea of having these like big monitors on the wall and sales performance and everyone wanted to kind of have this like fireworks going every time someone made a sale. I thought I could transfer that directly into the software world. Um, horrible idea. Software engineers don't work like that. It was me being uh, polluted from, <laughs> from, from having my thinking uh, kind of like very influenced from another industry that I had been in before. But the essence here was that Back when I was doing Sigmatic, I was trying to innovate. That was my the, the core feeling I had. I'm going to go into the SaaS market, and I'm really going to really try to innovate something. And it went horribly. Uh, failed epically. My second attempt with FeedHive, it was very deliberate that I wanted to try to go in the complete opposite direction and then say, I'm going to try to be going into a market that is as well-established and pre-validated as I possibly can. And there are a few things you can pick from here. Email marketing, social media marketing, project management tools. And I realized that project management tools, they've been here for a long time. And yet Monday pops up and then come new, like ClickUp pops up out of the blue. It, there's still room for having a, an alternative to some of the other established tools that are out there. And that was my approach with FeedHive. So it was actually very little about trying to come up with a new clever way to solve a pain point that users have rather than to give users yet another alternative. And it's dangerous. It, it, it's a risky way to start and it's a risky foundation of building a business. But my thinking back then was that if the market is truly huge enough, there will be a tiny portion of those many, many, many users out there that have this pain and need to have a solution for it. That will prefer it exactly your way with those tiny, small differences that your tools have. And that was really my approach with FeedHive. It was also the approach with LinkDrip. Um, I saw some of my competitors in the social media management, um, among social media management tools, also building link shorteners and making more sophisticated versions um, and built them into their tools. And rather than building another uh, system that could um, give, like build UDM parameters and add upload thumbnails and of custom ODM images and things like that. I thought I would try to engineer it a little bit more and see is there interest in having something that is going a little bit further down the street of Airtable and Zapier and these kind of like automation tools where you can start customizing the behavior a whole lot. And it seemed like there was a lot of interest in that and that was the way I, I went. But nothing inherently neither innovative or a huge problem that I had to solve for myself. Back when I was starting to do social media, there was definitely some things that I wanted from a social media management tool that I thought the market was missing, but it wasn't quite frankly that I couldn't have just picked Buffer or Hootsuite or some of the many others and just went with that by the end of the day. Interesting. So how did you validate then 
that people needed it? If it wasn't your specific need, but how, how did you look into the market and, and figure out if there was an audience, a potential customer base for these products? Yes, it's a great, great question because this is crucial. When when you're building something in a market that's this well-established, it's not that you don't know that there's a market. It's how to actually fit in there and, and how to stand next to some tools that's been around for plus 10 years. Um, I did this on Twitter. I reached out to, I had been building my audience for around six months at this time and I were in some closed chat groups on Twitter. I reached out to a bunch of them and asked, why are you not scheduling your tweets today? And a bunch of them, they mentioned that there were this tool and then there were Hootsuite and Buffer. They were bad to use. They didn't like them. They were old and they didn't seem very maintained. Then there were some specific tools at the time. Hype Fury, which was like from a from software perspective, really, really high standard. They have like excellent UI UX, but it wasn't quite what they were looking for. And there were some things that they wanted in a different way. I remember back then they mentioned they wanted a queue. Like um, many of these social media scheduling tools, they have like this list of queue. They wanted that in a calendar view instead. So I thought like, okay, there's like this tiny little thing that I can jump into the market. And now when users are going to look at these like 15 social media management tools and pick, I'm going to be the one with the calendar queue rather than a list queue. And let, let's just let that be it. That's that tiny little preference things that's going to win some, like a tiny little portion of users over. And I started building with these users that started mentioning this. We made a Twitter group, chat group for just this. And in two months or so, I built in secret with these um, 30 so users. And it was literally fully community driven. I uh, was in there talking to them daily, asking them questions daily. How should this be? How would you like this? And I was not trying to guess in any way. I was really trying to say, okay, these 30 people, they're going to be representing a, a bigger group of users, yet a small customer segment in the bigger whole that's going to be my future feed hype users. And that was my approach. Yeah, that's that sounds like a very very specific group of people that you like zeroed in from the beginning. Also makes makes sense that you would do this kind of behind closed doors, like figuring out what these specific people need instead of just pushing you know questions into your audience. Because I, I see a lot of build in public founders ask every single question about their product into a very diffuse audience and then get a lot of different answers back. So this this sounds like a very um, very reliable approach. How did you get into these groups, into these, you know, private conversations? Because I guess that's what everybody wants to know. How do you get into these private Facebook groups or Twitter groups or these LinkedIn things? Like, how? what was your approach for that? Well, it, it actually, um, this actually started six months or so earlier when I started being active online. At, at the time I started building Feed Hive, I already had around 30,000 something followers on Twitter. So this all started six months earlier from me being active online. And I think once you start um, once you start appearing and showing up and once you start getting some tractions on your profile, you're getting followers fast, people really resonate with your content, they engage with your content a whole lot. Um, these small Twitter groups, they form naturally. I actually didn't start any of these myself until the, the feed hive specific one, but I got invited into a bunch of these where I I saw other uh, influencers. I'm not sure how much I like the word, but you know what I mean, like content creators <laughs> with a, a certain amount of followers. Um, 
they were already in these groups and I was invited by these other people. They saw that, like, let's get Simon in here. It seems like he's got like a good amount of traction and he's saying some things that resonate with the rest of these people here. So it actually um, happened quite naturally. I, I wish I could say that I had the strategy and then I did this and that and this and that. I, I actually didn't. It, it happened quite naturally. So I, I think that what comes before that is really being active online and, and starting to build your audience. Yeah, I, I guess that that is the strategy, right? Like building this opportunity surface by just showing up and allowing people to invite you into these groups. Uh, Absolutely. That, that, that is great. I think that's wonderful advice for anybody who wants to build a community-driven or an audience-driven product or service or whatever, is to actually go into that community, surround yourself with those people, and then give them the opportunity to make you make a connection with you, right? And then yeah, take it absolutely. from there. That is really cool. Um, one thing that I found interesting about, let's, let's talk about Linktrip for a bit, because I, I just love the idea of, of a link engagement tool. I, I, I have an account and uh, I logged into it and I saw a lot of opportunity. I love this, um, this, this no code approach that you're taking. I think that is, that is a wonderful idea, kind of marries the idea of just pure links, like the technical thing with the applicability of many, many marketing strategies and tools that come from the no code field with the, that are just plug and play. Um, I, what, one thing that I saw in this, in your process of building this in public, and I generally love the idea that you're doing this, that you're not just building these things in secret, but now you're also building them in public and sharing the whole story and the journey. One thing that I saw is that you're doing early adopter lifetime access. That is something that, that you did with, with LinkTrip. Can you talk to me about this a bit? What considerations went into it? And if you set any limits or anything like that, because lifetime access, that is a lot, right? Yes, yes, it is. And I think that the, um, the whole idea behind selling lifetime deals is it's a bit controversial. There's a lot of, um, there are these sites like AppSumo and Dealify and these big marketplaces where you can go and sell lifetime deals. And, um, to me, I think it is, it is worth underlining that it is something you should do on a limited basis. I don't think that it's a way to build a long-term sustainable business, especially if you have ongoing cost, ongoing support cost, ongoing server cost, and a lot of other things. Um, but that's one thing. I actually think there's a bigger problem with lifetime deals right now, and that is that it, it has a certain reputation that if you're selling lifetime deals, you're in some sort of financial trouble or you're, you're just scraping by. And I think this is probably the most problematic part of it because, quite frankly, when you look at the numbers, like if you if you spin up an Excel sheet and start grinding numbers, you will notice that servers and hosting, it became really, really affordable. You can engineer your server and your cloud solution to pay almost nothing. And when it comes to support, you can engineer your solution in a way that is fully self-served. You can do a lot of things to ensure that even though it sounds like lifetime, you're offering a lifetime deal, lifetime users also churn. They also at some point want something different. They leave your platform. They don't stick around for an actual lifetime. And it's in a, in a lot of cases, I believe you can strip down the math of this and say like, this is, even if I was never selling a subscription, I was just going to go full on lifetime deal for the entirety of this the whole business, I still think you can come up with a financial model where that was actually possible and, and doable. However, I actually think the biggest problem is the reputation that it has right now. Selling lifetime deals, to me, first of all, 
it would it, my best advice would be make that Excel sheet first of all to make sure that your finances can actually support this. If you have for some reason very high um, server cost, I've seen some lifetime deals do this with AI and and with open AI access and pay, and that's that's a horrible idea because it can really become very expensive very fast. But if if like that, so that would be the first thing to kind of strip down the finances and see if you can support this. But I also really think that it's a it's a really um, important part of it is communicating why you're running this lifetime deal. You need to somehow justify it. With LinkDrip, I was very clear that this was an early access lifetime deal that we were selling and that this was a part of validating if there was extant interest in the product that we were doing and that we didn't, we haven't built it yet at this point. Um, we had like a quick POC to verify that the things that we were advertising on the web page could actually be technically done and carried out. Um, I think that's the most important part of doing a lifetime deal today. I do think that there, it, it's a great option. It can really, really benefit you in a lot of ways. There's a lot of money you can get up front, and it's a great way to validate that there's actually interest. Nothing beats having people pick up their credit card and actually pay. Um, but it does come with some considerations. I would never launch a lifetime deal without very, very carefully expressing and communicating that this is a limited time offer and that we're doing it for a good reason. Otherwise, people start talking. That's my experience, at least. Yeah, yeah, I th mine too. Like a lot of a lot of the deals that I find, as as soon as I see that there's no limit to this, it's like, why are they doing this, right? Like because my mind as an engineer, I go to, well, this will cost them something in the future. So do they expect me to not use the product after that, or will they then try to convert me into something? You know, you have all these things. And I do wonder for you, like lifetime deal, that is such a hard thing to even define. What does lifetime mean to you? Because in my experience, lifetime can mean lifetime of the person using the product, lifetime of the business that is offering the product, lifetime of the version of the product in the business. It can mean anything, right? So what do you consider a lifetime deal to look like? It's a, it's a great question. To me, I, I think it's it simply boils down to them having access to the product as long as the product lives. I think it, uh, I don't think that anyone out there hopefully believes that a a, let, that that any product, any SaaS product on the market is somehow immune to fail, go bankrupt, go down. I so so I think most people are aligned with that idea that it's a lifetime deal that exists as long as the product exists, and that there's not going to be. Yeah, I don't know even know how that would work. If you go bankrupt with your company, you're going to somehow make a version of that product still run somewhere. Um, I think most people are aware that that's, that's just not feasible or, or, or even technically possible. Yeah, yeah that, that is an interesting point generally for any SaaS business. It doesn't even have to do, do with lifetime deals. Just like if there is an end of business somewhere, what do you do, right? And may, maybe that's something we should talk about because uh, maybe with FeedHive, not so much that, that if that is over, if that ever were over for whatever reason, right, people would probably find an alternative to deal with their, their scheduling needs. But with LinkTrip, I find it, it's very interesting because links are something that is, they're hard to change in some capacity, right? If the moment they're printed yeah. in a book, you have a problem. Yeah. You will need to, to make it happen and you need, will need to, to be able to transition the data into another format if people need to. Is that something that you've actively put into your business model or your 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 service Ab offering for LinkedIn? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, that's a part of the platform that people can take their links and export it in 
in a format either JSON or CSV. It's not something we have fully in place yet, but that's definitely something that's going to be available for all our our users. It is, as you say, it's such an essential deal. A part of the uh, the, the offer that we have on LinkedIn is actually creating QR codes. And it is something that people do a lot. Then they print a ton of QR codes and hang them offline around the city yeah. and in different places just to figure out that the link is somehow broken. And now they're, they might have printed thousands of these and it, it's a big pain. With LinkDrip, you can change the destination of the link and it will in the second start redirecting to a new place. And you can even automate this to add A-B testing capabilities so it goes to two different places on a dice roll. Or you can program it to change after a certain thing has happened, certain amount of clicks or at a certain time. All of these things, I think, to make sure that printed links stay alive in, in any way, you need to offer something that is flexible like the product itself, but you most certainly also need to give people the, the option to export the whole thing and take it to any other link shortening redirect service that can do the same. And, and you know what? I, I love that. I love the fact that as founders, as software founders now, at least you and me too, I guess, and, and the things that I do, we, we actively allow our customers to leave, which for many customers is something that, that then makes them decide to buy the product because they know there's a way Absolutely. out if I need to, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a crucial part. There's, there are certain technical uh, challenges to to solutions like this. In certain cases, exporting data and moving it to other um, other uh, either a competitor or in, in, to another service is uh, one thing. With LinkTrip, there are certain issues with the actual domain name of the link. It says rli.to. Um, we recommend if you print links in any type, you do it with a QR code because they can actually be transferred and moved. Um, there are certain issues with. Um, Offering to, uh, as you say, offering to the users to take their data with, with them might be a determining factor for some people actually signing up for the product. There is some sense of safety in knowing that the data that you produce and this tool belongs to you. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I would assume that particularly if you try to reach out to bigger companies, to enterprise businesses that have some kind of static links that are printed off or put on a dvd you know those kind of technologies Something like that you need to have a guarantee that this will be usable if they change vendors so that that might just yeah. really be a, a a service level agreement on on that like you provide as long as you can and if you ever offboard there's a way out i i find these kind of things there are specifics i mean not not every business will have to deal with it but um i think for people who are building businesses, this stuff is interesting to consider because it's a mindset on how you approach your customer, right? If you think your customer is somebody that you want to to lock into your business, that, that's the way that some people do it, right? But if you give the customer the option to move away on their own volition, now all of a sudden you have a very different relationship with them. And I think more and more as we build our businesses in public, like you are doing, and as you kind of align your business identity with your personal identity, trust is such an integral part of this whole thing that you can't just lock people into your product anymore. That just doesn't work, right? That, that the balance is off. That I, I really like that. I, I want to talk to you about building in public here because it just kind of came to my mind. You, you're building... I, I guess your software products in public and you're creating YouTube videos around them, this is happening in a very competitive space, right? Both 
social media scheduling and market link marketing, I guess, they're both very competitive. How do you make sure you're not oversharing when you're building in public? It's actually a great question. And um, I think... I think um, this is this is a matter of being a little bit uh, deliberate on a, on a bunch of levels with what it is that you want to teach your your, your audience. If you are the kind of uh, building in public uh, person that run one particular thing and you're kind of like all in on one business, you might even own a, a brand that you're building in public from or doing um, your whole audience building from your your actual brand. I would be a little bit more hesitant. I think uh, one of the, the things that come from building a personal brand, as, as I do myself, and having a, a product offer of multiple things is that you don't necessarily need to worry too much about compromising one specific part of your business or one specific product that you're offering. I see um, everything that I do online a little bit as an ecosystem. I try to go away from the kind of classical funnel thinking. I see a lot of of building in public people that still adopt this idea of I'm going to go online and post and everything is a matter of moving people one step down a very specific path that I want them to take and that ends with them buying this one specific thing that I'm offering. And it's not that that can't work. I think the way that I'm doing it, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about it a little bit more like an ecosystem. I try to invite people in. If people, they discover me online, either on YouTube or on Twitter or everywhere, I'm first of all, there's going to be hours of content that they can start consuming. They can go on YouTube and they can literally binge watch a bunch of things that I teach, the values that I'm trying to advocate for, and a lot of other things that I, I have to say. But I actually rarely try to push people down a specific part or try to kind of think, lock people down in this kind of funnel sort of thinking. It's an ecosystem. It's a playground. It's sort of like a sort of museum. They step into it and they can find various things in here. Like there's a bunch of it that's free. And then there's going to be some of the things that are paid, but I'm, they will stumble on my products in one way or another, whether that being FeedHive or LinkDrip, or now we just acquired another small SaaS called TinyKiwi. And I have info products that I sell as well. There's my YouTube channel, which is free for the consumer, but I still get paid for that behind the scene. So there's a lot of ways that this can work. And this is also what I mean by when I work on one of these things, I actually work on this entire ecosystem. And I like this idea. That's why I'm not really that hesitant with sharing certain things about either FeedHive or LinkTrip that other more um, all-in type of audience builders, they might be a little bit more hesitant with sharing something they find either business critical or that, that put them in a too vulnerable position. I don't really mind if something come, put, puts feed hive or the whether that being revenue numbers or our amount of users put it in a disappointing light either those users aren't for me or they will find another product or something else in this ecosystem that i'm building that is more for them and this is also why in a classical kind of marketing funnel it's a big problem when people drops off and people will drop off that's like the whole idea about a funnel and people that drops off a funnel they're typically wasted you don't really do more of them you just try to aim broad and then get as many people down to the the very bottom of it as you possibly can when people drop off in my funnel there are other places they can go they can stumble upon other products that's more for them and i think about this in this way in in 
in everything that I do. I don't really worry that something I say will put any of my products in a bad light. I also don't try too hard to make everything about that particular thing. There will be other things. And um, yeah, I, I hope that sort of answered your questions. I love it's it. a little bit of a, like a made at a, at a philosophical level how I, I roll with everything I do mainly. I, th I think the, the comparison between the funnel and what I can only kind of visualize as a web, right? That's that's the thing you actually do. You have a web sort with all of, these yes. different nodes and they're interconnected. I think like not only are we wearing almost the same color t-shirt today, we also have the same approach to business because I feel uh, I, I do the exact same. I have my books. I have my also, a, you know, a tiny little YouTube channel. I have my podcast. I have my, my Twitter presence. I have software products as well. And all of them are connected in a way where nothing is ever pushy. I never try to push anybody anywhere. I just, I want people to find my universe where I am, I'm in, right? I want them to find my solar system 100%. with all the different planets that surround me as the sun. And then I want them to trace back from wherever they found me to where I am right now. It's kind of, I, I call this like leaving evidence of ambition and of uh, just being, being present and allowing people to trace that back to Love where that. I am right now. And then they can find everything else. And I think you're doing a great job at, the same thing. I found you on, in many different locations, right? I've seen you on YouTube. I've seen you on Twitter. I see your products and all of that creates this whole universe of, of Simon, Simon's universe. And I, I, I kind of love that. I, I think that that is an approach that as a, as a maker, as a creator today is so much more involving and, and empowering in the community that you're in than just trying to put people through the funnel. I love your explanation of people dropping off the funnel because if they drop off in the web, well, they just go on another strand of the web. They find you somewhere else, right? And they, there might be something even more useful there. That is a great analogy. I'm, I, I exactly. will steal this. I, I love this. <laughs> the web. Do it. That's do cool. it. Like, you absolutely <laughs> use that. And I love thinking about this as a universe with planets and, and a sort of a web because that's exactly what it is. And it also comes back to the fact that, it, as I started talking about earlier, that I always think about making things reusable. They should somehow be... Um, giving something else than the, the exact result that they're giving right now. But this is a way of making your customer segment sort of reusable. So you turn your people, the audience, into a form of building blocks as well, that if they don't fit in a specific place, they can be reused in something else. They don't just drop off the funnel and then they're never good for anything. And this is also why not only am I not afraid of being a little bit putting some vulnerable numbers of my businesses, but I also try to talk about some things and and include my audience in something that might not actually have a benefit right now. It doesn't really fit anywhere in my ecosystem or in my universe as it is today. But I'm also thinking a little bit ahead. If my businesses go down tomorrow, there's going to be no link drip or no feed hype. Is there any way that I can still include the audience that I have built and make them invite them into a new branch of this universe that that then can offer them something, some value of some sort, and then make me way less likely to go out of business just now. It's at least easier to rise from a situation like mm -hmm. that. This is, this is also why I consider the personal brand that you have as a creator to be the most valuable thing that you have. Even though you may, may have a business, right, that, that is making, I don't know if, if you're lucky, millions a year, right? If, if you get it to that size, that is valuable in a financial sense. But if the business falters, the business is gone. But your personal brand, that is just going to grow over time. Even if you, if you break a business along the way, which many people do, 
just learning from that is going to increase your personal brand, right? So that's that's it that's is. a very valuable asset to have. It is, and just to add on top of that, it also adds an element of feeling more safe to fail. And I know that there are there are many different schools of thoughts, especially in the in the Twitter uh, verse with all <laughs> us um, indie makers and builders. There's yeah. the kind of classical all in kind of like uh, Andrew Gazdecki style, like go all in. And then there's the super small bets. The best way to make something feel fail to save is just making it as small as possible. So it's not really that much time wasted The the Daniel Vassello kind of style of, of small bets. I I, I understand the idea of both. Mine is a little bit in the middle. Whenever I try to put out a bet, my way of feeling safe to fail is that that bet, even if it fails, still somehow contributes to the ecosystem. So say LinkDrip failed. I can still make content from that. That still p- contributes to my YouTube channel. If I do a YouTube video or something, it still contributes to the product that I do. If I put out an info product, the whole thing is kind of intertwined. And, and here's where the web analogy was really great again. Whenever I put out something new, my first question that I ask myself is, does this fit into a web in any way? Or is this just going to be completely independent, um, me trying to shoot something out there and then see if it works? Because it needs to fit into the web. There needs to be an element of it doing some kind of cross-pollination between that and my other products. That's for me, is the best way to not go all in because I don't I'm not that kind of person, but also to still feel safe to fail on a a little bit more than super tiny bits. It allows you to bet a little little more and still feel somewhat safe. Yeah, there's always something meaningful that might come out of this, even if the bet itself doesn't work out. I love this. And I, and I think as a as a as a creator, as somebody who's sharing their journey, no matter what you do, if you if you try and find some aspect of it that relates to the other things that you've been doing, there's something in there, right? And particularly for for you as a as a YouTuber sharing the lessons learned, also your strategies and all that, I see you use everything for that, good or bad, because that is always relatable, right? People fail a lot, people succeed a little, they both relate to failure and success. And you can incorporate that into your YouTube channel, which I want to talk about because I'm a big fan. I'm a subscriber, of course, because you, you teach very awesome. interesting <laughs> things. And I, I often wonder that particularly as you are an active software engineer, as active software founder and a YouTuber with a pretty sizable YouTube channel and a high quality production. I mean, I'm looking at you and your fancy YouTube studio right now. How do you balance <laughs> being, being a creator who talks about things and being a maker who does the things that the creator then talks about? How, do you have some kind of balance that you actively seek or does it just happen as it happens? It's, it's, it's at this point, it's fairly planned and scheduled. And this is a matter of um, it's time consuming. YouTube in itself can quickly become a full-time job easily if you if you if you go down a path where everything becomes too um, uh, arbitrary. I would say there's always an element of me trying to include something in my YouTube videos that is something first of all that people can't find anywhere else. So I try not to just take information read on the internet and give my version of that because it's that can be valuable, sure. Um, but it's super important for me that this is something that is inherently my experience, something that people just can't find anywhere else. So it needs to be experiences from my own journey, or at least what I'm trying to teach should be heavily tied up on 
um, experiences from my own journey. And then I think there's always it's for, for my YouTube channel. It's it's it, it is a marketing channel. And, and that's not something that I'm I'm like, I can easily admit that it serves a purpose of being a marketing channel for my products. And I do actually create a quite significant amount of leads for both Beehive, LinkDrip and TinyKiwi on my YouTube channel alone. But it's, it's by the end of the day, not really the purpose. It, it is always when I start making content for YouTube, it is to empower uh, entrepreneurs and people who are uh, intimidated by the whole idea of SaaS. That's why the the things that I'm preaching on my YouTube channels is so centered around you don't have to take VC money. You don't have to go out and seek investors. You can actually roll a micro SaaS from your own home. You can do this alongside your work. You don't have to quit your job. And I truly believe that this is true, first of all, and that's not to neglect that it's still super hard and super challenging. But the purpose, the main purpose of my YouTube channel is mostly to empower people who want to try to build their own SaaS but have no intentions or feel extremely intimidated by the idea of investors, big teams, the whole Silicon Valley um, style of model. It do happen to, um, it, it, it creates leads as I go along because my channel is growing really fast on this model. And I think compared to uh, other channels I have seen, again, a little bit too much funneling to my taste and it does prohibit their growth when every single video they come to this channel and watch somehow have this ulterior purpose or motive underlying that they need to go and sign up somewhere or do something. And um, when I do it like this, because the, the path of, of doing entrepreneurship, like, like we do it here, it just, it, it will feed you with so many lessons constantly. So for me, it's not ever a problem coming up with content ideas or things that I want to talk about, it basically produces itself. Then on top of that, there's the whole production, the actual production of it. And, and I have quite rigorously nailed down an, a, a pipeline inside my company for, for doing this as efficiently as, as, as I can. Otherwise, it becomes very time consuming. But I think a thing with YouTube that a lot of people struggle with is what should I talk about? And I, I let this be lesson driven 100%. Yeah, that's, that's the, one of the biggest benefits of building anything, both just building it yourself and building it in public. Like there's always this kind of dynamic of, well, this is useful. I can teach this. I just learned this. Now I can teach it, right? That that is just stuff happens every single day that there's this never ending well of interesting topics. I, I love that. And I, I see you very actively take these lessons and immediately share them. And that is something that, that I value as somebody who follows your journey because I'm invested in your success. I want to see you succeed. And I also want to see how you deal with challenges because you have something to teach. So I think you're, you're doing a wonderful job with that. Just, just want to say that as a subscriber, good job. Thank uh, you. I'm very happy to and, hear that. Subscribe. Yeah. It's, <laughs> no, it's, it's just something that you, I love this because you can see this in your videos in particular. They are very well edited and they have a very consistent style that is 
teaching focused. It's not conversion focused. You don't you don't want to convert people. At least that's not the message that I see to to do anything. You just want to teach them. And if they find anything that you do interesting, they will go there by themselves, right? They don't need to be encouraged to to buy or anything like it. What I what I do wonder as a creator myself in in the video space, how long do you plan these things ahead? Like how long does it take for you to turn your idea you're learning into a video? Particularly knowing that you have a process. So how long does it take you? Good question, because how it works right now is uh, mainly in bulk. So I script and write for five videos at a time. Then I spent typically a weekend and I shoot the whole thing along with maybe 10, 12 shorts. So I just make a video um, shooting weekend out of it. And then I shoot a lot of content and then I plan ahead and schedule ahead almost three months into the future. So going from an idea to a an actual video. It's hard to pinpoint exactly because I'm I'm batching it like I do here. Um, and sometimes I also do run into problems with certain lessons that I have being outdated. I have had to kill off videos in my schedule that I ended up spending a lot of time producing because I learned something new along the way. And I realized that this is just not updated knowledge. This is actually poor advice. I, I don't want to be the person actually saying this now. And this can happen sometimes within a three month period because you learn so rapidly. Um, I think I spent on average around 10 hours a week at this moment um, on my YouTube channel alone. And this includes everything from thumbnail, researching topics, writing the scripts, filming, editing, um, and at this point, I do the whole thing myself. I'm actually a little bit embarrassed to, to say, but I, I, I still do everything in this uh, whole production pipeline. Um, but I think around 10 hours a week, but that's given that I'm batching it and that I have now a huge library of stock videos that I can just drag in and they somewhat fit. I have filmed hundreds of small clips of me on a computer, me with a mouse. I have a ton of these thumbnail starters that I can just click and then it's a Photoshop project and I can start building a thumbnail out of it. Tons of building blocks that allow me to, to push these things really fast. Um, I wouldn't expect someone else to only spend 10 hours a week on building a YouTube channel like mine if they're just starting out. I certainly didn't. It took longer in the beginning for sure. Yeah, you build it. These 10 hours, they exist on top of hundreds of hours of work that went into this Absolutely. before, right? Absolutely. I, I love this. And your your stock videos, where you just do stuff and hold things up or whatever. I, I love these too, because they just give give the videos a very nice character. And there's one particular scene that I really like. I want to talk about you uh, about one particular video you made, and that's called A Day in the Life of a Tech Entrepreneur Without Burning Out. That was... The, yeah. the title of the video. And I really enjoyed it because it kind of intersects almost everything that I'm about. Software entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship in general, and mental health. And these are important things. And I was I was very, very happy to see that one little stock video where you were holding up one of my books. It was just really adorable <laughs> to, to see my work reflected in it. But it was a scene that where you were like, well, I want to I wanna take in all this knowledge, but I don't have time for it, right? I have other things to do. And there was this very dramatic scene where you, as a founder, you were just screaming out in horror over error messages and business problems. And I remember feeling this myself, but when I, when I ran a big SaaS company before I sold it, and I wonder how you prevent these moments from happening in your own life right now, because you look busy. So how do you deal with the, the mental challenges, the pressure of all of this? That's a great question. Um, I think I, I, um, 
I think for me, and it 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 might kind of it's often when I say this, it comes out a little bit tacky or a little bit like uh, the corny, you know. But my my the way I do everything is joy driven, and that's also really the the message of that video that you're mentioning here. I make sure that passion and joy is on top of everything else, and as soon as you do that, you have. In my experience, at least, you will you will experience an, an almost unlimited amount of strength to handle these extremely difficult situations and where you're mentally being very challenged with, with a lot of things. I hear a lot of people talking about discipline as if that's the key, that's what you need to develop, that's motivation comes and goes, discipline is what you're going to fall back on. And it's not that I'm going to sit here and say that no discipline, like you, I, I agree that you should have some discipline, but I try personally to gamify my entire life around joy. I think joy and motivation, intrinsic motivation for the things that you do is the most powerful fuel that you can put into you. And it, it will give you superpowers in terms of handling certain obstacles that are super hard. And I have certain tricks that I do in my life to enhance this sense of joy. First of all, as you mentioned right now, I look busy and I think a lot of people get this experience. And it's a long time since I tried to to um, count the hours I work, but it's up there. Now in this video, I say 85 hours. That's back then. It's probably not 85 hours. Uh, today, I just became a dad and we're doing a bunch of family stuff, but um, it's up there still. However, one thing that you will notice is that my calendar is empty. While I have a huge to-do list of tasks that I need to fix and things constantly rolling in and it's never ending, if I wanted to spend 100 hours of this every week, I could. My calendar itself is close to empty. We have a podcast right now. That one was scheduled. Full disclosure, it, we didn't just kind of like randomly pop in here. Um, so there are a few things every once in a while that I do have scheduled. But one of the things that really intrinsically motivates me and brings me joy is the fact that I can do things in my own flow, pick the task that I'm excited about that day and do it in as I, I try to make my task as little dependent on each other as I possibly can. My entire team we are five members of my team right now. We have a, an excellent culture of doing async written work. We never have meetings. I, I don't ever barge in and, and take a specific hour out of my team members' time. And I found team members that really love this way of working as well. I hate that. And I know they hate that. It's it's a way to interrupt the word. And I in my experience, there's never... Think, yes, sometimes, I mean, you should never say never, but there's rarely things that are so important that it can't be written down and published in a Slack channel. And then my team will see it at some point of the day and they will address it. And to me, that's a way of gamifying my life and setting it up for joy and excitement. And it really does allow me to handle some really critical situations. Like sometimes you do need to go into firefighting mode and then... I don't have anywhere else to be. There's nothing scheduled. There's nowhere that I have to kind of like, I can drop everything. I can push everything aside and I can jump right on board on something that's either critical or I can allow myself to feel tired and exhausted about a certain thing and not continue doing that by force, but just shifting to something else that I'm more excited about at that point. That's one of the ways that I do that. I, I really like it. Like the, the empty calendar in particular is something that I very much relate to. Like our conversation right now is the only thing I have scheduled this week. 
Which, same, that, same that, that was always my goal, right? <laughs> to have the calendar so empty that nobody else could tell me what I can't do, you know, because it's not really about them telling me what they want. That's just how you interact with people, right? They have their needs, you try to help them, and then you render them a service and they pay you. That's kind of how we live our lives, right? But to, to not have them control my time was the biggest thing that I ever wanted. And I'm fortunately at this point that having this amazing conversation with you that is the only thing where two people are involved so i'm, I'm really really Absolutely. happy about this and i think your your mindset that i hear right now is a two things it's like nothing is so urgent and important that it needs to interrupt everything else so you have this very clear focus on prioritizing things uh, in, a, in a very sane way, because if everything is urgent, then nothing is urgent, right? If everything needs to happen, then th there is no priority anymore. And I see you having a very, very active priority sense there. And a delayed communication being as, as a, the, the central mode of a team is also wonderful. I think now that most people, even solopreneurs that are growing their, their teams, like to the first employee or first contractor, we mostly do this remotely. We mostly do this on a global level, right? I have two people that help me. One is in Denmark, the other person is in the Philippines. Like, obviously, I won't ever be able to talk with them at the same time because I'm in Canada. So now we're all over the world, right? So this needs to be, uh, and I, I've tried to establish myself like a, a standard operating procedure, like a, a process-based communication and very async back and forth emails. Nothing is ever so urgent that I need to call them. That is that was always the plan, and that's how I set it up. It's I'm happy to hear you're handling this the same way, because um, in many ways you are um, somebody I look up to in terms of being a creator, because you handle it in a wonderful way and you talk about the things that I care about in a in a very aligned way as well. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of uh, what I really really like about your approach here. And this stopping whenever you want on the thing that is bothering you and going to somewhere else is also a great approach. I do wonder, now that your businesses are growing and you have more and more people, do you see this becoming harder? Like to kind of stop doing the thing that bothers you because maybe there is a dependency with somebody else's work. Have you found a way out of that? Yeah, sometimes it does become harder and it's, it, it, it's like playing down, it isn't always possible. Sometimes you do need to kind of fold and say like there's something that's urgent or important enough or there's certain i'm not gonna i don't want to put my team through um stressful situations so especially we have on um feed hive in particular because it's running it's a social media management tool and we are dependent on these third-party apis it's our entire product and they fail notoriously it's it's very annoying and our users aren't always aware that, that that this is just the name of the game it produces a lot of support tickets so we have a, a a support team on board and i don't always want to sit to put them in a stressful situation handling some users that can be very very frustrated let's just say it like that and and downright like impolite and and not very nice to talk to so there are some times where it's not always possible and that's where i'm as the business owner, jump in and make sure that their work is nice and pleasant and not um, because I think as as like it's not their business first of all. They're also not entrepreneurs. They they didn't sign up for this. That's that that <laughs> yeah. kind of crisis management and uncom yeah, and right. discomfort is what I signed up for. So sometimes, of course, I put my calendar or whatever I'm doing at that time aside, and then I just 
kind of do and solve whatever problem I need right there, even though it can can be a little bit annoying sometimes. I think the essence of it is that I think I think people don't burn out from working a lot. I think people burning out from be feeling forced to work on something that is either either not clear to them how this should benefit their lives or they're forced to do it either by their employer or by salary situations or or other I think that's what burning people out and I have tried my very best to make sure that there are a minimum number of situations where I have to push myself to keep working on something that I really really dislike and every time these situations happen I do sit down I carefully reflect and I try to come up with processes to prevent this from happening in the future both for myself and and for my my employees that's working with me that that closes the loop here's another process to make the the life of your business your employees and yourself better easier and more manageable i love this and i love the kindness that i hear in your voice right now because you're talking about your employees and trying to protect them and making sure that they get what they sign up for you're just an awesome guy and i'm really really glad that we had Thank this you, conversation Robert. here today that was really nice if people want to find out more about you and i bet they do want to find out more about you where do you want them to go ah uh, i think youtube is probably the best place to get like a an in-depth um glimpse of, of of what i'm doing otherwise i'm very active on pretty much everywhere linkedin twitter instagram tiktok uh, you can find me around the internet on most social media platforms Yeah, you are everywhere, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Simon, for, for being on the show today. That was Thank really, really kind here. of you to share everything that you shared today. That was wonderful. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. It was a pleasure. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Butcher Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Ka, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my books and my Twitter course there as well. If you want to support me in the show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will truly help the show. So thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.